coming up today how the 5G coronavirus conspiracy theory tore through the web, the UK's worrying police state creep, and how a volunteer army is stitching to fix the UK's scrubs shortage. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me this week are Amit Kutwala. Hello. Matt Burgess. Hello. And Vicky Turk. Hi. This was the week when Anne Summers revealed it sold more penis-shaped pasta last week than in the whole of 2019. Weekly sales were up 1,300% compared to an average week, the retailer said. This was also the week when the UK conceded that none of its antibody tests have so far performed well enough for mass usage. The government had its eye on 4 million tests, which test whether someone has had COVID-19 and therefore could have immunity and could have formed part of a plan to loosen lockdown. This was also the week when Facebook's experimental teams launched a new app called Tuned. It's an app for couples that lets you chat, share music and create a digital scrapbook. And finally, this was the week when a tiger at the Bronx Zoo in New York tested positive for COVID-19. Nadia, a four-year-old Malayan tiger, is one of seven big cats at the zoo thought to have been infected by an asymptomatic zookeeper in the first confirmed case of human-to-animal transmission in the United States. Now, just on that one, Amit, there's been a few reports um, in Hong Kong, I think in Belgium as well, of animals, either pets or in this case zoo animals, having coronavirus we're pretty sure that they can get it, it seems, or maybe they've eaten something that was contaminated with coronavirus, but there's absolutely zero evidence that they can pass it back to humans. That's right, yeah? Uh, yes, as far as I'm aware, that's... that's but obviously, we know that it, it's thought to have jumped from a, a, a animal to a human in the market in Wuhan, but we're not... There's no evidence of it jumping kind of between domestic pets and humans at the moment. So, yeah, that's... We're that's working on... Uh, we're working on a story at the, um, on this at the moment. There's quite a bit of research ongoing to try and understand why this is happening. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to include that in the show notes. Um, we're recording this a little earlier than we ordinarily would. It's Wednesday. Uh, we normally record the podcast on a Thursday or a Friday. It's a bank holiday weekend in the UK. Um, does anyone have any exciting four-day weekend lockdown plans? You know, I was going to do some painting, but then I realised I didn't have any paint. <laughs> <laughs> this has gone well for you. Matt Burgess, you're always baking, full of good ideas. But I couldn't get any flour. So. <laughs> right. Yep. Uh, I'm going to do a long run, probably. I might run into central London and uh, see what like Oxford Street is like when it's all completely uh, shut down as part of my uh, daily mandated exercise. Very nice. Amit, have you got anything exciting planned? I think this might be the moment for my 600 episode Simpsons Marathon. This Good. could be, this yeah, could I mean, be the could, weekend. Four uninterrupted days. You could get through a lot. I, I would run the maths, but I'm terrible at maths. Uh, so what did we learn this week? Let's start with you, Vicky Turk. Mm, so um, I've been looking at how coronavirus is changing our spending habits. Um, now, it didn't include penis pasta in these numbers, but according to software company Stackline, the biggest declining product category in March was suitcases. Quite understandable because, you know, no one's no one's thinking of luggage to go on their holidays. Uh, and the fastest growing product category was disposable gloves. Again, quite obvious why people might be stocking up on disposable gloves. But what do you think was the second fastest growing category, product category, uh, that was up 650%? Matt Burgess. I would guess hand sanitizer. It's a good guess. It's a good guess, but no. Flour. Not flour. No, although mm. you're getting close. Oh, I think I know. Is it bread makers? Bingo. Yes, bread makers. Everyone is rushing to buy bread makers. Demand has shot up. I guess it's. A, I guess probably because it's a product that really you know there's relatively few sales of the rest of the time. You know, like every, how many bread makers do people need there was sort of you'd a imagine of a, this a was the first ago, wasn't there yeah and in, in, unless it had featured prominently on a cooking show at some point this would probably be the first bread maker boom certainly 650 mm. percent growth is uh 
it's pretty good pretty good yeah so people um, are reporting you know difficulty buying bread makers now from retailers because you know stocks are running out it's a real problem and i'm glad you brought that to light um pat burgess what did you learn this week uh, this week i learned that there are three main types of avalanches uh these are the powder the slab and the wet um i was reading an article about avalanches um, and the most dangerous and i i know you want to know which is the most dangerous type of avalanche uh so i'm going to tell you uh the most dangerous type is the slab avalanche which essentially is uh as it sounds it's like when a big piece of snow that's on top of other snow uh is the snow that moves in an avalanche in the other types of avalanches it can be snow that is under other snow that moves first and various different formulations but the slab is the one you got to watch out for thank you very much that's just terrific amit what did you learn this week uh, I learnt that UK cinema going peaked during and immediately after World War II with a record 1.63 billion cinema admissions in 1946. Um, by 1984, that had slumped to 54 million uh, before recovering to around 165 million before the coronavirus hit. Uh, right now, only 1% of cinemas worldwide remain open, but um, 1946, I guess, shows the industry that... that Where? Yeah, I'm not sure, to be honest. I didn't, I didn't check into... I don't think it's, like, you know, the everyman in, like, Hampstead that's still open or anything like that. I think it's probably in, in countries that haven't instituted quite a full-scale lockdown. Uh, so this is globally. Um, maybe places yeah, in China still, that have Yeah, but for 1% to be open, that's, that's quite a large number when you consider that countries that aren't under lockdown, you can pretty much count with the fingers on your hands. Yeah. And most of them are tiny Pacific islands. Yeah, maybe they're just very well uh, stocked in terms of number of cinema screens on the, in those specific islands. Please report back next week with uh, a follow-up fact so that we can uh, really nail that one. Um, so from penis pasta to bumholes, um, I learned that Stanford researchers are working on a toilet that tracks your bumhole, the smart toilet, details of which were published in the esteemed journal Nature monitors your health by analyzing your stool, urine and the timing of both using four cameras and an array of sensors and identification systems. It gets better. Each user of the toilet is identified through their fingerprint, makes sense, and the distinctive features of their anoderm. An anoderm, dear listener, is a combo of your anus, ano and skin, derm. As Vice reports, your butthole is like a snowflake. No two are exactly alike. Do we know that? I mean, who's done that research to see how unique they are? Well, the, the Stanford researchers have, have actually done this. So, um, I wonder what if, their sample uh, size was and what their methodology was. Um, having had a brief scroll through the <laughs> academic paper that they published, it contains a lot of bumholes. Um, uh, I encourage anyone that is interested in the weird and wonderful world of science and just something for light relief to go and take a look at it. It's a, a good reminder of human ingenuity and a little bit of fun, but also serious scientific research, I'm sure. Uh, our first story this week is quite a serious one. 5G conspiracy theories. You've probably heard of them. So uh, hands up, podcast uh, friends. Who has seen, heard, talked about, or had anything to do with in their lives the 5G coronavirus conspiracy theory? Everyone has uh, a single finger up. Uh, what have you seen or heard? What's been going on? Well, I heard um, quite early on in the coronavirus crisis in the UK before lockdown, I, I just I was speaking to someone about it and I was sort of like, oh, are you worried about this virus? And they looked at me like I was mad and was just like, no, I don't think it's real. And I was like, what do you mean you don't think it's real? And they're like, I think it's the 5G. I hadn't, I didn't know this was a conspiracy theory at the time. So I was completely thrown and sort of politely smiled and then, and then sort of Googled around a bit to see what on earth they were talking about. And has anyone else come across it in real life or has Amit and Matt, as your exposure to it, mostly been like in the wilds of the internet? Yeah, mostly in, mostly in the wilds of the internet. I remember seeing a map where someone had like done a correlation of coronavirus cases with uh, 5G masts obviously not taking into account the fact that 5G masks and coronavirus cases both tend to congregate in populated areas. So what they've basically done is done a population density map of the world and used that as evidence for the fact that 5G was uh, causing coronavirus. Good. Matt Burgess? Uh, what I saw was uh, Bill Gates is behind it all. Yeah. Uh, so... All of those are very uh, fair, but completely unreasonable points. There are actually six main conspiracy theories. And Matt Burgess, you touched on one of the weirder ones there. Um, I'll run through them really, really quickly and then explain just how mainstream 
this story has gone. So the conspiracy theories are that 5G is somehow dangerous, that 5G worsens the effects of coronavirus by weakening your immune system, that 5G outright causes coronavirus-like symptoms, that the coronavirus lockdown is being used as cover to install 5G networks, that Bill Gates has something to do with all of this, and finally, that this is all an elaborate Illuminati mass murder plot. Safe to say, none of these conspiracy theories have a shred of truth in them whatsoever. Most of them are outright dangerous, but they've gone really, really mainstream. In recent days, a number of 5G masks across the UK have been set on fire in apparent arson attacks. According to The Guardian, at least 20 mobile phone masks have been vandalised as a result of 5G disinformation in recent days. Videos of these attacks have gone viral on social media, which has further added to the fervour. At the government's daily coronavirus press briefing on April 5th, Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove described the 5G conspiracy theory as dangerous nonsense, while the National Medical Director of the NHS, Professor Stephen Powers, said that this was the worst kind of fake news. And part of the big sort of way that this has spread around the internet is there seems to be a lot of celebrities and people with a lot of online influence and real world influence, to be fair, uh, that have been pushing them as well. Yeah, absolutely. And some people will say, as with perhaps mass shootings, the best way to treat these conspiracy theories to get rid of them is just to ignore them. If you report on them, you add to the sensationalized nature of it and it gives it further oxygen and it will keep on burning and burning and burning. That logic doesn't work here because it has become so widespread and the people pushing it have huge amounts of influence. So we've seen Amir Khan, the boxer, singer Anne-Marie, actor Woody Harlson, former Dancing on Ice judge Jason Gardner, pop star Kerry Hilson, former Maiden Chelsea star Lucy Watson and TV personality Amanda Holden all pushing this conspiracy theory and Amanda Holden claims that she accidentally, this is quite weird, tweeted a link to a since-deleted anti-5G petition on 5.org. The petition, which at the time had 110,000 signatures and was growing rapidly, erroneously claimed that the symptoms of 5G exposure are very much like the symptoms of coronavirus. So are you saying that former Dancing on Ice judge Jason Gardner is not someone I should be getting my, my medical news from, James? Uh, well, take it under advisement, but I mean, this, it's absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, sure, people are allowed to post seemingly whatever they want online. There are very loose rules around what can and cannot be said on social networks. Social networks say that they should be open town squares. But when we've got a situation where something that is so comprehensively, excuse my French, batshit, but is being promoted by people with millions of followers to audiences of tens of millions of people... It just gets completely out of hand. And what's been lost in all of this is where it comes from. So if I were to say to you, take a guess, where has this conspiracy theory come from? Where would you imagine? Well, I'd imagine, I don't know, I remember hearing last year when 5G was first being um, instituted in the UK, the first masks were kind of being put up. There was a little bit of a campaign against it then, but it seemed very sort of parochial. It was kind of rural villages, um, maybe a little bit of technophobia going on. I don't know, maybe just that spiralled out of control somehow. Yeah, to an extent. And th this kind of conspiracy theory goes back to the 80s and probably even a little bit before that with high voltage power lines in the 90s with mobile phone masks and pretty much every evolution of mobile phone um, communication technology that's come since. So 3G, 4G, 5G, just wait for 6G um, has led to really, really weird conspiracy theories. And all of them have the same sorts of beats. So I was interested in where this one specifically had come from. Um, so I spent a few days tracking down the origins of it and it all started with one doctor. So on January 22nd, a Belgian newspaper called Hatleister Noise, uh, News, um, which means the latest news, published an interview with um, a doctor called Chris van Kerkhoven, who's a general practitioner from Poot near Antwerp. It ran the headline, 5G is life-threatening and no one knows it. And one scientifically baseless claim amongst many in that article, which was published in a regional version of the paper's print edition and on its website, though it's now been deleted, basically sparked this conspiracy theory, which has been a firestorm that's gone right across the internet and caused very dangerous real-world consequences. 
Van Kerkhoven didn't just say that 5G was life-threatening. He also said that it might be linked to coronavirus. Now, when he made these claims, um, coronavirus was a relatively small problem. It had claimed nine lives and infected about 440 people, almost all of them in the city of Wuhan. But in this article, under the heading Link Met Coronavirus, which I'm sure you can all translate, the journalist pointed out that since 2019, a number of 5G cell towers had been built around Wuhan. He asked, could the two things be related? And Van Kerkhoven initially said, I've not done a fact check, but then goes on to say, and this is the, the quote on which the article ends, but it may be a link with current events. Those comments were picked up by Dutch language Facebook pages that had been posting anti-5G propaganda for quite some time and from there it started to kind of spark out into the English-speaking world and before too long it was getting quite a bit of attention across this network of anti-5G truther YouTube accounts, Facebook pages and Twitter profiles. How, how did you find this? Like how did you actually trace it back to its source? Yeah, there's a really, really good tool um, if anyone uh, has a lot of time on their hands. Um, CrowdTangle, it's a Facebook-owned analytics platform, and you can basically plumb in keywords, terms, URLs, anything you like, and um, sort it by engagement, by posts that overperformed. So this is stuff on Facebook that, even though it only reached a small number of people, the number of people that it reached for the kind of thing it was was much larger than Facebook would ordinarily expect. So credit to Facebook, it does have this tool that makes analysis of its platform quite transparent to a degree. Um, it takes a lot of digging, but you can find this sort of stuff out. Um, and that's quite a good way of seeing when YouTube videos really, really start to go so viral that they jump off YouTube and onto Facebook. Um, and similarly from YouTube, it's tracking keywords and key terms to see over time where the interest and in viewership has gone. And that's key, isn't it? Because that's where, that's where it took off. Yeah. Um, so that there wasn't really a single video or single thing that sparked this. It was the algorithms, as it always seems to be. Um, the algorithms spot a viral trend. They can see that there's an interesting amount of engagement. They can see that tens of thousands of people are liking and commenting and sharing and viewing videos, which on a social network as a whole is quite a low number but it can see that this is viral content. So it starts pushing it, it starts amplifying it. So the algorithms, as they always are, were smart enough to spot that something was going viral, but they were too dumb to notice what the nature of the content was. But even then, for some time, the conspiracy theory pretty much bounced around this echo chamber, and it would take some weeks for it to break out. But once it did, those algorithms really, really propelled it all the way across the internet and onto the front pages of our newspapers. So who was it who was pushing this stuff on Facebook? Is it just a bunch of sort of, you know, conspiracy theorists, those kind of obscure pages? Yeah, for, for the most part, it was. But to understand where they got it from, you have to go back a little bit further um, to the start of 2019, in fact, um, and you suddenly find Vladimir Putin. Well, sort of. So amongst this sludge of conspiracy theory, um, the broad sentiment against 5G appears to have been pushed more than anyone by RT, which is Russia Today, the Russian-backed news broadcaster propaganda machine. Um, in one news segment published on YouTube in January 2019, which has nearly 2 million views, a correspondent for RT called Michelle Greenstein explains that 5G has just one catch with a dramatic pause. It might kill you. So this is completely scientifically baseless. It's a rant. It's nasty, nasty stuff. But it's part of a coordinated and sustained attack against 5G by RT. In April of last year, it also erroneously claimed that children exposed to 5G suffered from cancer, nosebleeds, and learning disabilities. A declassified US intelligence report released in 2017 shows that RT videos on YouTube average 1 million views per day, higher than any other news outlet. So this is a very, very successful platform for disinformation backed by the Russian state. And while RT has never outright linked 5G to coronavirus, it has played a key role in adding legitimacy to conspiracy theories surrounding the technology. It's put together a network of experts who are critical of 5G, who are willing to go on air as university professors from seemingly esteemed institutions and to criticise the technology and how the West is seemingly 
seemingly blinding, blindly rolling it out. Why is it doing it? Well, seemingly to hinder the global rollout of 5G so Russia can play catch up. It's as trivial and stupid as that. And RT has also made all sorts of strange winks and nods that somehow Bill Gates is a bad actor in the coronavirus pandemic. So do we sort of like know a bit more about sort of like how RT really helped spread this? Because if it hasn't um, actually sort of like explicitly linked the two things a couple of times, like is it like how is it doing it then? Yeah, so this one RT correspondent um, that, that I mentioned, Michelle Greenstein, has um, done around a dozen reports on the health dangers of 5G over the last um, tw- uh, over the last uh, 12 months. That's just one correspondent. It's got a fairly good track record, shall we say, of pushing this line. And while it hasn't directly made the link, it's sort of dug away at the foundations of 5G. Um, and as I say, put all these experts out there. So its influence in pushing this kind of paranoia around 5G is huge. And as I mentioned, it's the most viewed news broadcaster on YouTube. And these ranty news items that it specializes in where presenters stare right down the camera. You'll have seen them on Fox News and sort of shock jock talk shows, staring right down the camera, addressing the viewer about something they should be outraged and afraid of. They're social media dynamite. And that really, really helps these conspiracy theories. It's a really well-trodden path. Random people on the internet, some of them influencers within the conspiracy theory community, get the help, seemingly, of a rogue nation state to help amplify this thing up. Then you throw in the likes of Infowars and Zero Hedge, they pile in, and this causes interest in these fringe views to soar. So by mid-February, the coronavirus conspiracy theories, especially the ones linking it to 5G, were starting to gain real traction on social media. So much so that on February 19th, a page called Waking Times, which has been on Facebook since 2011 and has more than 600,000 followers, shared a post claiming that there were disturbing connections between 5G and the men who were developing vaccines for coronavirus. Another YouTube video linking coronavirus to 5G has been viewed more than 900,000 times. And this is fairly typical of how this nonsense has spread. Many hundreds, thousands of posts and videos, some with just a few hundred or a few thousand views, but others with millions. And they're getting lots of engagement, lots of comments, lots of shares, lots of likes. And it becomes a mushroom, basically. This thing blows up. So that Belgian doctor who seems to be kind of almost at the root of all of this, um, what's, what's his sort of role in it? Been. He's he's not the only kind of expert who's now sort of pushing this line, right? No, and in fairness, his impact on this whole thing was actually pretty small. As I said, what he said mostly bounced around the Dutch-speaking world, but it seemed to be all the, all this conspiracy theory needed, all any conspiracy theory needs, is a spark. And he seemingly, as far as I can tell, gave this conspiracy theory the spark it needed. But since then other people have had a far greater influence on how far it has spread. So, for example, a video of a lecture given by Thomas Cowan, who's a physician from California, um, claims that coronavirus is the result of poisoning caused by 5G. One version of this video, which has been posted to YouTube a number of times, has more than 640,000 views. Another version has almost 600,000 views. Cowan's thought was given on March 11th at the Health and Human Rights Summit, which um, might sound like a worthy cause, but it's actually an anti-vaccination conference that took place in Tucson, Arizona. The event also was headlined by Andrew Wakefield, who you might know as the discredited British ex-physician and anti-vaccine activist. Cowan's talk has been shared widely across YouTube, across Facebook. People keep uploading it again and again and again. People are really trying to push this because they've got an expert who's saying exactly what they want to hear. And it's receiving tens of thousands of shares, comments and views and helping to legitimise something that is a dangerous, dangerous fringe view. And this, you see, getting punted elsewhere amongst sort of a community of influencers, if you like. So in a Facebook post on March 30th, the attorney and anti-vaccination activist Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the name might be familiar, he's the son of Robert F. Kennedy and the nephew of the former US President John F. Kennedy, 
also shared the conspiracy theory linking 5G to coronavirus. The global lockdown, he said, was stopping people from protesting to, that's a lot of Ps, stopping people from protesting to prevent 5G robber barons from microwaving our country and destroying nature. A video attached to that post has been viewed almost half a million times. To date, nearly 5,000 Facebook posts receiving 1.1 million interactions have in some way linked coronavirus to 5G. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. So you alluded to this at the start, but in the sense that sometimes reporting on stuff like this can actually add fuel to the fire and you kind of end up kind of giving credence to stuff that isn't, you know, legit and actually maybe cause more damage. So what can we do? How can we debunk this without just adding more fuel to the fire? Yeah, I think with this one it got to such a scale that it needed whacking down effectively you had to you had to slap it around the chops just to stop it from getting out of hand when we're seeing real world vandalism taking place off the back of this then the expertise has to kind of come to the fore um, and the more fact checking can be done the more this may be misleading things that social networks can do when content like this is put up we're seeing um, tiles put on facebook posts saying this has been proven to be false or inaccurate. Um, more of that. So you need the fact-checking organization, news organizations to step up and sort of fill the void that this nonsense is allowed to exist in. But more urgently, you need to do things on a platform level. So I spoke to Josh Smith, who's a senior researcher at Demos, which is a think tank. And he explained that basically something like the coronavirus pandemic is the perfect environment to spread a conspiracy theory message. So the idea that 5G is to blame for the uncertain, frightening situation we find ourselves in, he said, is a comfort. It provides an explanation, a scapegoat for the suffering caused by the pandemic and a way to make it stop. You tear down the mask and the virus will go away. Of course it won't. This is utter nonsense but the messaging is dynamite for social media platforms it's designed to go viral it's compelling it's irresistible for many people and they click on it and social networks love this stuff so he argues that the dangerous messaging around 5g and this is nothing new highlights the urgent need for process uh, for a process of identifying and removing harmful misinformation. So since this thing really, really blew up, we've seen YouTube effectively ban this view from its platform. How successfully it will be able to police that remains to be seen. And certainly based on past evidence, it's got a real task on its hand. Facebook has previously been quite Quite, po quite positively praised for the steps it's taking around coronavirus misinformation, but it completely abandoned its duties seemingly with this 5G conspiracy theory. This thing went hugely viral on Facebook and it wasn't doing very much to stamp it down. So it's the same problem over and over again, isn't it? Social networks have failed to tackle disinformation running riot on their platforms and we're talking about it again. And I kind of don't want to get into a debate about the, the same debate about how they can tackle this but i've been saying a lot maybe some of you have thoughts of what the next step should be to knock this conspiracy theory on the head once and for all or will it just burn itself out i i'd imagine that it's probably going to be something that um does slowly burn itself out but also i guess one of the one of the really tricky things with this is this is a case of misinformation where we're actually seeing sort of real world impacts you are you're seeing people uh, burning down particularly in the uk um 5g masts and for something to go from uh, a piece of misinformation on facebook or whatsapp or wherever it's being shared to actually having a, a consequence in in physical life is very rare so i think this is something that sort of like transcended that uh that that boundary and and it stands itself out as in that space so yeah uh, and certainly I mean, can't in, predict the future certainly in the uk um this is unprecedented uh, matt burgess you've reported previously um on um fake news going viral in india on whatsapp and the dangerous consequences that can have in the real world this is the first time um, I think that it's happened in the UK at such a scale. Um, let us know what you think. Podcast at wired.co.uk. What responsibility do Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, WhatsApp et al. have to clamp down on this kind of disinformation? If they do have a very big responsibility to clamp down on it, how should they go about doing it podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that story our second story this week uh keeps the serious theme it's about the police state matt burgess 
Yes. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, we on the podcast, we talked about the UK's lockdown situation. Uh, Since then, a lot of things have obviously changed around the world. We've seen a lot more countries going to uh, their own lockdowns. I think one of the most recent at the time of recording was India, uh, obviously one of the biggest countries in the world. Uh, But here in the UK, uh, just for the very quick recap, people are not out allowed outside except for uh, very basic needs so if you're an essential worker and have to go uh, do your job you're allowed outside we've had restaurants closed you're, people are allowed outside for exercise you're allowed outside for shopping very limited things essentially uh, and since those rules were, uh, were put in place I think three weeks ago now here roughly uh, we've been see, seeing people's behavior change on a huge scale it's been completely unprecedented the amount of people that have actually uh, been following these rules and uh, respecting the lockdown has been uh, in, in the vast majority, to be honest. Um, the government's had to clarify a few rules around the sort of confusion uh, that they've created, like because they're in, in, uh, instigating such a big change, we really have sort of like seen some sort of like cases, uh, and they're mostly sort of fringe cases of like uh, people in various industries asking if they're affected or not affected by them, uh, such as people in the construction industry, that wasn't made clear to begin with, but it's been clarified, and that sort of thing seems to settle down quite a bit now. Uh, but what we've seen sort of as this has sort of progressed is uh, the individual behavior of people sort of being highlighted. So we've seen, uh, we've had a few rare sunny days in the UK um, and we've seen people going out to the parks and, su- and sunbathing, particularly in big cities. Um, and the government has then had to sort of come out and say that sunbathing doesn't fall under these sort of like necessary reasons to be leaving your house uh, and you shouldn't be doing it. We've seen um, police go around a couple of the big parks in London with megaphones be- blaring out, this is not a... Um, this sunbathing is not permitted it's not an essential activity uh please stop please go home and we've seen started to see people being fined across the uk for doing this you can be fined 60 pounds which drops to 30 pounds if it's paid within like a two-week period um and essentially some police forces around the uk have started to issue uh these penalties in sort of like reasonably large quantities there have been some forces that have issued them in more than 100 uh different cases um and now uh, we're basically seeing this expand this is a bit of a nightmare for the police because obviously they're they're short staffed at the best of times and to expect to kind of be present in all these public spaces and actually kind of make sure people aren't breaking social distancing guidelines is essentially just an impossible task given the numbers of people. What we've seen or what I've seen on social media recently is a lot of people kind of taking photos of people in public spaces and, and you know, kind of saying, oh, I can't believe I saw all these people out you know when I was also out (laughs) and there's this kind of like uh, social shaming aspect to it of people you know who think they're they're perfectly entitled to be out and about criticizing others for doing essentially the same thing or not not doing it properly Um, but have we seen kind of that escalate and people actually reporting each other to the police? So yeah, this is this is one of the the things that are sort of like uh, the byproducts of of the lockdown that we've started to see. Um, so as you say, there's been a, li- a lot of public shaming going on on social media. If you go to sort of any like local Facebook group of a newspaper or other, uh, like there are certain groups set up where people just report on report uh things going on in their local areas and we've seen loads of people sort of doing that um but as basically as soon as the lockdown started um police chiefs around the country started reporting that there'd been a spike in people reporting those around them so it could be their neighbors could be people in their local areas uh so in northamptonshire uh which is where matt Reynolds and i are both from originally that's a bonus fact um the police there said that it had uh seen a surge in calls from people reporting the neighbors for going out for a second run um so some of the uk guidelines say you're only allowed out once a day um that, that's not actually written into the law but it's considered as a best practice um so police there said there have been dozens of calls about people ignoring that part of the order um as you say Amit, we've seen posts on social media we've seen uh, a few posts of sort of people in construction and builders working on people's homes and then people tweeting out oh my neighbor's uh, construction worker or person in this trade has not had a had any uh, ppe protective equipment on um and that general sort of shaming and then sort of 
to give a bit of sense of sort of scale of what people are reporting neighbours and others around them for uh, in Derbyshire, Derbyshire, which is one of the police forces that has been criticised quite a lot for sort of its response to, lo- to lockdown. It used a drone in one case to video some people out for a walk and then posted that footage to Twitter. But uh, Derbyshire's police chief, uh, Peter Goodman, has also said that over 11% of his forces, uh, 2,300 daily calls have been from members of the public concerned about their neighbours' behaviour or breaching social distancing restrictions in the town or countryside. Uh, and he said that some of the some of it is taking place in public spaces. Some of it is more about people entertaining entertaining at their home addresses. So for want of a better term, people are essentially snitching on each other for breaking the social distancing guidelines. I mean, it seems a bit weird, doesn't it? Because I mean, don't get me wrong. I am all for people following the law and even going beyond that and following guidelines and best practices, which aren't necessarily written into the word of the law. But my, my sense always is with this kind of public shaming or social media shaming. I mean, you never know what's going on in someone else's life. You don't know if they're a key worker. You don't know if there's some extenuating circumstances. Like, unless it's very obvious that they're putting someone else at risk. Why are people doing this? Like, what's the psychology before behind people kind of calling the police on their neighbours daring to go for a second run? Can I make a, um, an admission here? I have become a curtain twitcher. So um, <laughs> my working from home set up, my partner and I um, sat at a dining table that we got set up in a big, big bay window. We're in a first floor flat on a side road that leads onto a, a busy high road next to two parks. Um, and, you know, you sort of see people coming and going. And there are a few people that are obviously taking their piss they're getting into like sunbathing gear and going to the park with paperback books in their hands and tins of gin and tonic and this sort of stuff fine i mean you've, you've sort of seen from the government's modeling that they need is it something like 75 percent of people to really really strictly adhere to these guidelines and there's sort of a built-in um allowance for some people not to follow the rules as strictly as others but personally it does get my goat a bit when you can see other people who who are young who aren't really going to have serious, um, uh, um, whatchamacallit, um, serious... Uh, symptoms. What's the word? There we go, serious symptoms. L- they're likely not to have serious symptoms if they contract the virus. And it's just kind of sad to see them behaving like that. I wouldn't report them, but you can see why some people are getting really, really wound up by this and the messaging from the government, you know, everyone has to play their part. Well, if you see someone not playing their part, then I guess... Why not? Why wouldn't you report them? I guess it is a bit like, um, what's it called? The the dilemma where, um, you know, if, if one person goes and sunbathes, they're probably fine. They're not putting themselves at risk. They're not putting anyone else at risk because they can sunbathe with plenty of space around them, social distancing and everything. But if everyone did that, then obviously you'd have a big problem. So I can see sort of both sides. There's probably just a lot of frustration, like the people who are sticking most fastidiously to the rules then maybe feel a bit undermined if they see people who they feel are not doing their part yeah it's it seems to be a really tricky one to sort of pin down sort of definitive reasons for um so i've been speaking to some sort of uh police uh, behavioral uh, sort of experts over the last week and, and a couple of former police uh, officers as well um and it's generally um, there are a few different reasons for this. So, uh, for instance, the uh, the Derbyshire police chief who I mentioned earlier uh, said that some of the tip-offs are a little misguided. Some might be malicious, people trying to get back at their neighbours uh, for just petty disputes or stuff they've had over the years. But the ma- vast majority of it has been concerned members of the public sort of doing the responsible thing. Um, and across the country, a few police forces have set up new websites that allow people to report where people are breaking the rules, which sounds a little bit sort of like a little bit dystopian in some ways. But I think there is more of a uh, infrastructure thing behind this of because there are so many reports coming in, the traditional sort of uh, non-emergency police number, which in the UK is 111, uh, has been sort of overwhelmed in a lot of cases. And I think police are keen to sort of like separate a lot of uh, these things into different areas, which they can then report to and not see uh, the the existing system sort of overburdened uh, when other types of crime might be reported on there that could be potentially more serious or require more of an immediate response. Um, Some people have said that there is uh, potentially, and this is what you you guys were sort of touching on when you were talking, uh, there is 
uh in sort of like behavioral science there's generally a sort of response that humans don't like to see other people cheating essentially so uh if if everybody's in the same scenario where you can't go outside you can't go out and enjoy uh the sunshine or whatever um everybody is everybody's in that position and seeing somebody else doing it when you're abiding by the rules obviously increases that sort of motivation to then report somebody to do this but ultimately i think so a lot of the police uh, response that we've seen to this has actually been to be very proportionate and not actually they're not going to act i mean they physically couldn't act on a lot of these cases and i think only in the bigger examples where there uh, there are gatherings reported uh, so there's there was a barbecue that was broken up in the west midlands where there was 20 people involved um it's only in those sorts of cases where we actually have seen people at the police going and sort of responding to some of these issues We've been we've been talking about this in in very sort of uh, British terms, you know, G and T's, barbecues, curtain twitches. But presumably, this isn't just a British problem. No, it's not. So um, it's, this is something that's going round the world. Uh, all the time basically uh, at the moment uh, so one of the one of the listeners uh ken v from malaysia wrote in to say that uh their lockdown rules uh there are uh movement control orders which are sort of similar to the uk but they basically mean that non-essential services are shut down um and there have been police roadblocks on major roadways uh to sort of check out that people traveling um are doing so with uh, valid reasons so that's the case in one country and then sort of in new zealand and also Germany uh, there have both been reports of country uh, of police forces setting up um, websites similar to what we've seen in the UK um, and fielding sort of unprecedented levels of crime reporting and calls uh, in one uh, area in New Zealand there were more than 4,000 reports of bad behavior over uh, a certain amount of t- a short amount of time and uh, the website that was set up to um, to deal with this crashed um and then also in germany as well uh police in munich took up to 150 calls every day from citizens reporting alleged breaches of the coronavirus rules um and uh yeah there have been some police forces that have also responded saying that actually um people shouldn't report everything they should really think about it the police aren't going to be able to respond to uh if there are free people sitting on a park bench but this is just a temporary thing right we're in extraordinary uh, times and people are behaving or being asked to behave in ways that are very, very alien. So the the consequences of that behaviour, the curtain twitching, um, dobbing your neighbours in, that's all wrapped up in this whole issue. There aren't going to be longer term consequences of this. At the beginning, I said police state, which was slightly over-egging it. This is more curtain twitching than something as serious as normalising the surveillance state, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, this is one of the things that sort of like a few privacy groups are looking at around the world. Like there's obviously um, we're going to see a point in in the future and, and that is yet to be determined what it is. And it will be different in different countries of where lockdowns are, uh, the restrictions are removed. And this is probably going to be a slow process, but um, there are going to be issues then around. Uh, so take the UK, for instance. London has been the worst affected area, pretty much. Um, will more rural areas, will cities, uh, maybe in, will cities in Wales be uh, have lockdown restrictions removed first? Uh, so when that happens, if that happens, how do you keep policing in one place? Uh, will people move between other areas? And there's like lots of questions and things answered that we just don't really know about about that at the moment. But also, sort of privacy groups are sort of like keeping an eye on sort of how responses are happening around the world and then they're going to try to measure uh whether these sort of like do cause any change in the future um like there are fears from people about normalizing surveillance and um and and that sort of thing happening over sort of a medium to longer term period and i guess one of the concerning things we've seen is um police forces perhaps overreacting in some cases as you say like you know they've had to deal with a lot of reports and in in most cases they have been quite reasonable but we have seen incidences where they've been perhaps trying to enforce rules that aren't actually the law you know as you say going out for more than one jog a day actually isn't written into law we've heard stories of police telling shops that they're not supposed to be selling easter eggs which obviously you know there is no law against that um is and that's a bit concerning isn't it because you know the police are not there to enforce you know what government ministers say on the telly they're there to enforce what is actually written into law with all the checks and balances that that involves 
Yeah, I, th- I think that that was probably one of the sort of issues that came down from sort of like the government guidance on this. Um, so the government sort of made all these uh, uh, suggestions before the law had actually been passed, which then in reality, I assume people that were writing the law and actually getting it through uh, the Houses of Parliament and Houses of the Commons couldn't probably do exactly some of the things that had been said um so i think now we're in a case of where the government has set out guidance which is i guess best practice and what is people should try to follow uh but what is actually written into the law doesn't quite match up and and obviously that has caused a, quite a bit of confusion and stuff already uh but also i guess um some of the police officers and people and researchers uh that i was speaking to have actually said that um from their perspective they would always see discrepancies in how different forces around the uk handle things because the uk's policing system is split up into 43 different police forces and essentially some of them will interpret things in different ways and and i think it's always probably worth uh keeping in mind that some of the things that we do sort of see bubbling to the to the top of uh sort of news reports are often extreme or fringe cases um and i think generally the sort of like overwhelming situation has been yes there have been been these things happening and they could be worrying in some scenarios but um ultimately a lot of people are doing what they're meant to be doing um even if they're uh like peering out behind the curtain like james temperton uh yes sorry i love that you know the number of police forces in the uk off the top of your head that is uh that is impressive well done um now uh podcast.wide.co.uk um that was quite a uk focused story but we bought in a couple of other countries how is the lockdown being enforced where you're listening from and as we start to move into the next stage of this pandemic where lockdowns are partially lifted or altered or even tightened we'd like to hear from you about how that's affecting your life and the way you go about your day-to-day business podcast at wired.co.uk please do get in touch vicky turk i can't possibly take this segue away from you please take us to the next story Yes, we're going from snitches to stitches because I've got a story about the volunteer army sewing scrubs for NHS workers. Wait, Amit, did, did, did you write that segue? Yeah, I would like to claim credit for the segue as my one contribution to this week's podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> would you like I to you read it? I thought you wrote it, James. No, no, no. I, wanted, I wanted you. To, I wrote it. I wrote it as a gift for one of you two. So I'm happy for Vicky to. Uh, to You're so kind, it so Vicky. Tell us all about. I feel like I've stolen the, your thunder, Amit. Sorry, I thought, um, but I appreciate the gift. Yeah, the <laughs> stitches. So. Um, you know, as we've seen, we've seen many stories from across the world of health workers complaining about a lack of suitable PPE, so personal protective equipment. And one important piece of kit that helps stop the spread of de- disease is also one of the simplest, scrubs. So that's that really basic clothing that health workers uh, often wear around hospitals uh, that's regularly hot washed to kind of get rid of any potential uh, viruses, bacteria, general disease. And... Um, And to combat the shortage, volunteer groups have popped up, which are offering their sewing skills to sew scrubs for NHS workers. So in Shetland, for example, uh, way up north, an NHS worker put out a call on a local Facebook group and soon had hundreds of volunteers donating fabric and sewing scrubs for people in the local hospital. And they used whatever fabric they could find, um, poly cotton or cotton materials that they had lying around the house, including, as it happens, lots of old kids' duvets that I guess that's the thing that people tend to find when they're looking for a large amount of fabric that they're not using anymore. So there's doctors currently walking around a hospital in Shetland wearing uh, scrubs with things like Thomas the Tank Engine and and Buzz Lightyear on them, which, you know, apparently is totally fine uh, as long as they're frequently washed and not capable of spreading the virus. They're all really helpful. You mentioned there at the top that most people in the NHS will be wearing these every day anyway. So why has the coronavirus caused such a shortage? Is it purely because of how infectious it is? Yeah, so, you know, scrubs are often worn by uh, lots of people in the hospital as well. It's not just doctors, doctors, nurses, cleaners, uh, porters, 
um, you know, lots of different staff members. Uh, but because of the increase in infection control to try and stem the spread of the coronavirus, they're changing them much more frequently. So they don't want to pass the virus between patients or wards. And the best way to do that is basically to throw one pair of scrubs into a hot wash, put fresh ones on, so you're not possibly transmitting things accidentally on your clothing. But the laundry just can't keep up. So there's not enough scrubs to keep them in supply because this this is a big um, kind of uptick from what they were doing previously and there's also lots of people in hospitals who don't usually wear scrubs too so people like consultants um, often wear their own clothes you know if you might see a doctor walking around in sort of a smart shirt and trousers in the hospital that's perfectly normal but again for this increased infection control a lot of them are choosing to wear scrubs as well so there's a greater demand on the supply and that's because again it's a lot easier to change and also people don't want to be taking the virus potentially from their homes to into hospital or from hospital back to their homes so they don't want to be wearing the same clothes when they leave their house that they do when they do enter the hospital so the easiest thing to do is just to throw on a pair of scrubs so all of this has led to an increase in demand and a shortage of supply you know these scrubs they're not expensive at all to buy um, but there's there's been a bit of a backlog with the usual suppliers and that's led to a, a delay in delivery times so what kinds of people are kind of stepping in to solve this problem? Who, who, who is actually out there kind of making scrubs at this point? It's a real volunteer effort. Um, so there's lots of different groups across the UK and I imagine around the rest of the world too. Um, and they've all kind of started from a very sort of grassroots local um, area. So one in London started when an NHS doctor just reached out herself to a local uh, mutual aid group in Hackney and you know, just mentioned that this was a problem and could anyone potentially help? Um, and people soon jumped in and started volunteering saying, you know, oh, I've got a sewing machine, I could sew a couple pairs. So they got together a group and organized all over WhatsApp, um, ordering fabric, getting it mailed out to different volunteers in the community and then sending it to that doctor. Some of her colleagues then came asking for their, if they could have some scrubs as well. Um, and it soon spiraled and the message got shared widely. So that particular group, has now kind of spread into a whole set of volunteer groups across the country. Um, they're called Scrub Hub. They've got a, a website that um, has contact details for all of the local groups. Um, and they're all working kind of just in, in that local community um, way. Um, and then someone else saw that effort and started their own group because they were not based in London. Um, and they used to work in the costume department uh, on the His Dark Materials BBC series, the Philip Pullman TV series. Um, they've, they'd finished wrapping up uh, production on that and like many sort of freelance workers found themselves out of work under coronavirus because obviously film and TV productions have been put on hold for the large part. Uh, so they asked some of the people who'd been working in that costume department um, if they had some free time to volunteer uh, and they started also making scrubs um, and these are people who you know have obviously lots of experience uh, some of the best costume designers in the country kind of coming together they haven't got any paid work on uh, but they're volunteering their time for free and um, they started to go fund me and have raised over twenty thousand pounds to buy fabric to turn into scrubs so it's really kind of stepping up um, and they're sending those to hospitals and other uh, gp surgeries and other places all around the country. Uh, the problem, in fact, now that some of the groups told me is that they're they're struggling to get hold of the fabric because there's so many people trying to do this now. Can I ask a dumb question? Is it easy to make scrubs? And are there sort of like some key elements you need? Yeah, so actually it is a very easy thing to make there because they're similar to pyjamas. Um, and, you know, they're, it's quite simple. You have sort of a top, um, which doesn't have a collar or anything like that, um, and then trousers with some sort of drawstring at the waist to hold them up. Um, for the best results, though, you do need an overlocker, which is a sort of special sewing machine um, that makes sort of really strong seams. Uh, so a lot of hobbyists probably wouldn't have one of those, um, but if you're kind of uh, more involved in sewing at all, you might do. Um, you can you can make them without it, but just so that they can be thrown into a wash very regularly, that's the, the best thing. Um, so the main thing is that they do need to survive a very hot wash and frequent changing. So they need to be quite strong. Um, and you need to make them out of cotton or polycotton because that stands up to the temperatures. 
Uh, they need to have pockets because that's really important. All of the NHS workers who have um, sort of shared their tips have said, you know, we use pockets a lot. <laughs> uh, so if they don't have those, they, they won't be as appreciated. Um, and, you know, most hospitals, um, aside from the Shetland effort, which is obviously um, going to be very colourful over the next few weeks, most hospitals do uh, want specific colours. So a lot of them have sort of colour coding for staff members and the colour scrubs that you wear will um, relate to the job that you do. Um, so some of them have, um, you know, requested specific types of fabric, not just old kids duvets. Obviously, one of the, the main difficulties for the volunteers trying to put these efforts together is to do it all while maintaining social distancing. Uh, so they're, you know, trying to do their best to get fabric sent directly to themselves and then send it to um, the places that need it without having to come into contact with other people. There's loads more detail in Vicky's story, which we'll include in the show notes, including some hints about how you can get involved yourself. There's an awful lot of these community uh, groups up and down the country um, where you can find out more. Podcast at wired.co.uk with any details that you want to share about how you're stepping up and helping in the fight against coronavirus from within your own community, wherever you are in the world. Um, speaking of podcast at wired.co.uk, um, we had 19 emails this week. One nine, which I think must be a record in recent times. Um, this made us all very, very happy. So thank you so much for emailing in. Sadly, we don't have time to read them all out, but that shouldn't put you off from sending more emails. So here's a selection. Amit, we had an email from Duncan. Yeah, Duncan wrote in from Austria uh, talking about the hidden mental health impact of self-isolation. Um, in Austria, they're kind of a few weeks ahead of us and they're preparing for lockdown restrictions to be lifted pretty soon um he says the friendly sane voices of the podcast have been a lifeline uh, during self-isolation he also says that he's found social distancing a lot harder than he expected he's found it really difficult not seeing friends and family members um to the point where he says he just broke down and cried in his flat uh recently um but he's not alone he said he spoke to his male friends who were living alone and he said that every one of them said that they'd experienced something similar. Uh, he says, none of them said anything to anyone. They all thought that they were the only one. Um, so I think it's a really important point that like, although, you know, we're not physically present, you know, there are other people in the same boat as you, other people going through the same kind of thing. And I think talking to them about it is really helpful at this point. Absolutely. Uh, Vicky, we had an email from Hayley. Yeah, um, so Hayley writes, she's from New Zealand, and she says it's interesting to see the different measures being taken by different countries. She, she was sad that we got no mail last week, so that's why she emailed. So thanks, Hayley. <laughs> Very happy that you did. Um, and she said uh, she thinks we should look at what New Zealand is doing because it seems to stand out from the rest of the world. It's a very short, sharp, abrupt interruption to normal life with the hope of keeping COVID-19 under control she can't believe that we still have takeaways operational because apparently they sure don't in new zealand and Haley says i'm curious about what happens in the next phase after the lockdowns are we all going to be isolated by countries until the vaccine is created um, and isn't that going to be quite a long time what's the new normal after lockdown going to look like that's a good point you know even as countries individually lift lockdowns when will we see the return of international travel i can imagine that might take a bit longer and finally related to our bread maker chat earlier uh Haley adds that flour is very hard to get in new zealand as people are turning to the favorite pastime of baking and there's an element of panic buying as in reality there's plenty of flour in new zealand but we don't have enough bags to package it um that's also something that i've experienced here Haley. i struggle to get flour myself so it's clearly a bit of a global thing everyone's getting going to be an amazing baker after this do you have a bread maker, Vicky? I do not have a bread maker. My bread maker is my hands. It's a more fun way of doing it. Uh, Matt Burgess, we had an email from Kathleen as well. Yeah, so Kathleen wrote in from a small farming town in Ireland to say, uh, and this was an email that was addressed to Natasha about the story we did around um, Takeaway Stay in Open, and there's quite a few emails on this subject in general. Uh, Kathleen said that local chip shop has stayed open, installing a huge window screen across the counter uh, to reduce the sort of uh, the, the 
keep social distancing in place and they're asking to customers to line up outside with two meters apart uh, markings on the footpaths uh, and Kathleen also said that uh, they work in one of the farms that supplies the butchers that uh, supplies the chip shop and the butchers and basically in the in this production chain and because people are supporting local businesses um, they are genuinely uh, sort of seeing a, a lot of popular um service and custom and as pretty much uh it hasn't quite uh the financial and economic and not economic impacts haven't uh had as big an impact on uh this uh farming town in general which is nice to see and maybe one of the positives that will come out of this whole huge mess is that people will understand that it's important to support local businesses and to get more involved in their community um, and it's been really really encouraging to see so many of you emailing in with innovative and clever ways that you're doing that one final email from sasha who emails to say that they were listening to our podcast in the local grocery store when i lamented the emptiness of our podcast mailbox so they wrote in so thank you very much they write to say that they're currently in new zealand and continues to be astounded when they hear about people getting takeaways as we talked about last week or ordering art supplies and anything else from Amazon they explain that Amazon doesn't have so much of a footprint in New Zealand Um, you can get stuff from Amazon Australia but it's kind of a non-entity over there they go on to explain that shipping anything other than essential goods is not permitted so it's quite strange to hear about us talking um, about how life is more normal over here they also miss the ability to get the little things Um, that would normally be delivered when they lived in London within 24 hours. As it stands, they're making a little list of things that they'd like to buy when lockdown is eventually over. Top of the list, puzzles and Lego sets. As I said, lots of you emailed in with your experiences of the coronavirus pandemic and lockdown. Um, We're really glad that loads of you are still enjoying listening to the podcast um, and that we're keeping you company during these difficult times. Please do continue to write in. We love getting your emails and we'll endeavour to read out as many of them as we can on the podcast. But even if we don't, rest assured that we read everyone and really do love hearing from you. Podcast at wired.co.uk with anything you want to chat to us about or any feedback that you've got on any of the stories that we talked about on the podcast this week it's been another bumper edition guys um we've nearly gone on for an hour um hope the listeners out there don't mind us taking up so much of their lives but maybe uh with life being a bit slower these days um a longer podcast isn't such a bad thing uh thanks very much for listening as always we'll be back again next week take care of yourselves bye-bye bye bye goodbye